By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello and welcome to another episode of Emerging Markets Decoded, Moody's bi-weekly podcast on all things emerging markets. I'm Scott Phillips, Head of EM at Moody's. Now in previous episodes, we have discussed at length our views on the general environment for EM credit. And one of the points we've made consistently over the last 12 to 24 months is that it has really been the frontier EMs that have been particularly exposed to the challenges of tight financial conditions. And we've highlighted before how around one quarter of all of our EM sovereign ratings are at the level of CAA1 or below, implying a high number of issuers are at elevated risk of debt distress. Now, I'm very happy to say that I'm joined once again by my colleague Lucy Villa from our sovereign risk group to talk through some of the insights coming out of our recent sovereign debt sustainability analysis. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we see debt dynamics playing out across the EM spectrum over the longer term. So Lucy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you, Scott. Great. So let's get right into it. So Lucy, I've talked about this debt sustainability analysis. Can you give us a sense of some of the key conclusions coming from our work? Sure. As you alluded to, uh, Scott, in your introductory remark, debt sustainability is really at stake in frontier markets. But if it's the case it's not just a challenge restricted to frontier markets. Uh, when we look at the statistics, if we look at emerging markets, inclusive of frontier markets, half of them continue to have debt trending upward, but among advanced economy, a third uh, still have debt and interest burden projected to remain upward unless there is a drastic change in the direction of policies. So the key difference probably between uh, the different groups of country is that in case of advanced economies, there are reasons to believe that the sovereigns still have time to adjust their policy. Uh, and including most cases and to varying degrees, uh, their reserve currency statute and their strong policy effectiveness are reasons to believe that at the point there would be a reversal. Okay, good. And I do want to come back to, to a couple of those points, but Maybe if I could ask you, why was now the right time to be updating our projections? Sure. So we ran the first time our long-term debt projection during the pandemic shock. For one reason, the pandemic shock led to a steep increase in debt burden everywhere in the world. But at the time, interest burden remained low and manageable because monetary policy was easing. With the more recent inflation shock and the change in monetary policy environment, we wanted to see what it would do to our debt projections. And typically when you have higher inflation and higher interest rate, you need to look over a longer period of time to see what is the impact on the debt burden and the burden uh, of paying interest for governments. The reason being that they have an average maturity of debt of everything between three and 20 years. And that's the time that you need to look at to see 
how new market conditions will impact that at level. Got it. Uh, that's great. I did say I would come back to, to the point. I wanted to touch on what you were talking about, about, about frontier economies, because you know, you say um, that we're, we're sort of most concerned about the sustainability in the frontier economies. But one thing that I always find interesting, and I'm sure listeners will as well, is that often debt burdens in the frontier economies are still somewhat lower than in the larger EMs, or I guess for that matter, advanced economies. So what, why is it the case that we're more concerned there? So frontier markets in general are more susceptible to the interest rate risk, um, and that's a risk we look at uh, with our protection. And f- there are several reasons for that. One, they have narrower financial sector domestically. Second, they have larger borrowing needs because of shorter debt maturities and in general, larger deficits to finance. And last, uh, while it is true that I can rely on official sector funding um, from bilateral or multilateral sources, in general, these sorts of funding are small in size uh, and is earmarked to specific projects or condition to reforms and other milestones that are challenging to meet. Maybe the, the, the last thing that makes them um, very uh, susceptible uh, to the current environment of debt sustainability uh, challenges uh, is their exposure to foreign exchange rate risks, uh, which we, we, we did not measure or factor in our projections, but um, obviously uh, if you have a large share of your debt in uh, FX in the current environment, uh, if your currency depreciates, uh, that would also uh, inflate uh, your debt. Got it. Okay, now that makes sense. Now, I guess one thing I, I find curious is that even within the frontier economies, it's not just you know a homogenous group of countries, right? There are some countries where the story is quite a bit more positive, even within you know the really frontier parts of EM, like in like in Africa. And I noticed, obviously, um, in in countries like Senegal and, and Cote d'Ivoire, um, we are generally more positive when it when it comes to thinking about their sustainability. So, what's driving the differences here, Lucy? So in in case of Senegal and Côte d'Ivoire, they both belong to the same monetary union where you have a specific arrangement uh, that support the peg to the euro. So compared to other countries where they had to manage very high level of inflation here because of the peg to the euro, the inflation is much more moderate. And so the response from the monetary uh, policy authorities uh, are much more moderate, which means that the government can finance itself at lower interest rate. Uh, and also their borrowing requirements tend to be smaller because they have long maturity of debt. So the proportion of debt that they need to refinance every year is, is much smaller than in other frontier markets. Okay, got it. But again, I guess coming back to, to Africa, clearly there are you know quite a number of countries where their sustainability is an ongoing challenge. Uh, I think we called out Nigeria in our reports. Uh, we've also highlighted Kenya and Egypt. Um, maybe you could just comment briefly on, on those three countries. Sure. So in case of Nigeria, um, there are two uh, issues. One is fiscal in nature. There is structural and a primary deficit to finance. And second, the government, because of the narrow nature of its financial sector, relies importantly on funding from the central bank. And that funding comes at a relatively expensive level. It's the central bank policy rate plus 300 basis point. 
Well, it is true that Nigeria managed to refinance recently that stock of advances. So they dealt with the stock in terms of flows and future funding, which the uh, debt protection really looks at. Uh, it still remains the same. So if tomorrow the government needs to finance from the central bank, it will do so at very uh, expensive level. In case of Kenya and Egypt, um, I think the difficulty at the moment is that the situation is very fluid in both countries. Uh, in case of Kenya, we've seen relatively recently a spike in interest rate, which is relatively unusual for, for the country. And so depending on what's your view over the longer term of the interest rate for the government, you would have different uh, debt projections. So under one scenario, we see debt stabilizing under an alternative scenario, relying on plausible set of assumptions in terms of interest rate, you see the debt burden continue rising. In case of Egypt, it's a bit the same, uh, but Egypt is even more susceptible uh, to our assumptions in uh, interest rate. The reason for that is that it has a large stock of debt and that debt is with relatively short maturity, less than three years. It means that over the next three years, the government would have refinanced the entirety of its outstanding debt. And of course, depending on the level at which they would refinance it, you can have very different outcomes in terms of your debt dynamic. Okay, no, that's really, really interesting, Lucy. I mean, I think one thing that we've talked about before on this podcast is, you know, even though I said at the beginning, 25% of the universe is rated CAA one below, it, when you look at total debt or external debt, it, it generally contributes to a, a much smaller percentage of, of the total. And it's really the, the larger EMs that are more dominant, if you like, in, on, on that particular metric. So, so let, let's, let's switch gears then, Lucy, and talk about the, the larger EMs. I mean, how are the dynamics different for countries like Mexico, Brazil, or maybe even South Africa, actually? Sure. So for the three of them represented long-term projections that still show uh, the debt burden remaining upward. That said, um, when we look into more details in the assumptions we used, uh, it's true that for the three of them, we assume still a, a primary deficit. Uh, and that's a, a key uh, decision from us uh, uh, that we made, which basically means it's a kind of no policy change scenario analysis that we run there. But we know that in case of Brazil and Mexico, in both cases, we think the gap between the average interest rate on debt and the nominal growth of GDP is, is almost nil. So really, you just need to assume the government's, both governments, being able to run a slight primary surplus to be able to reverse uh, this upward trend in debt. And in both cases, we must admit that they have a track record of being able to do so at times at the cost of difficult reforms. I think it's fair to say, but there is the track record at times of doing it. So again, here, we really decided to make that assumption uh, under a more maybe positive a scenario, you could see debt reversing relatively quickly. In case of South Africa, it's slightly different. The reason is that the gap between the interest rates uh, on debt and uh, nominal growth uh, in GDP, we think is very likely to remain unfavorable. So you need to run a primary surplus to stabilize the debt and even a bigger one to, to reverse the trend. So here it's, we, we think the debt is more likely to remain slightly upward. And 
either you take the view that the government is able to run this large primary surplus, or you take the view, but that's more long and that's a longer term view, um, that ultimately authorities manage to fix uh, the issues with both the electricity sector and the labor market, because these are the two factors explaining why um, growth is so anemic uh, in, in South Africa. But that's more like a, a very long-term um, kind of scenario that, that we could uh, that we could find. Okay. I wanted to ask you about India as well, because I guess one of the themes that we've been developing on the podcast um, you know, in the last few weeks is about the rise of India as an EM powerhouse. And um, I was quite intrigued looking at the uh, projections that, that you developed, obviously, the view that there will be a fall in the trend uh, overall. Uh, but I guess uh, I'm, I'm curious to know how much of that is premised on the growth assumptions we're making for India generally, because you know India is growing, one of the fastest growing EMs um, right now, and then indeed is expected to do so uh, around 6%. So how might your views around India's debt sustainability change if we see a bit of a slowdown in, in that growth projection? Yeah, so we assume growth to be around 11% in nominal terms for India uh, over the long term. And of course, that's an average. In real life, it would over uh, around that, uh, that average. Um, what is interesting is that there is a relationship between your growth outcome and the fiscal stimulus that the government provides. Uh, so your, your level of primary balance and primary deficit in case of India. And the key, I think, uh, in India is calibrate fr fr from the government's perspective, calibrating the sufficient amount of fiscal stimulus to foster growth, continue to foster growth as has been the case, but not to too high of a stimulus so that it doesn't push interest rate too high. Uh, that's the key balancing act. Uh, it will remain so. Uh, and I think the way out for India has always been to try to broaden the revenue base precisely to be able to finance some more fiscal stimulus, maintaining interest rates uh, relatively moderate, and so being able to you know, continue to foster growth at that level. So we always said case of India, the size uh, of the revenue devoted to paying interest, it's also a, a key metric uh, in case of India. The more the government can broaden the re revenue base, um, the more it has room for maneuver to post, you know, foster growth and also uh, respond to uh, more and more challenging uh, environmental issues domestically. Okay. All right. Well, I think we better leave it there today. As I said, I think this is a really fantastic piece of work on, on debt sustainability analysis. Thank you very much, Lucy, and, and thank you for listening. Join us next time for another episode of Emerging Markets Decoded. And in the meantime, if you have any comments or topic suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to email us at empodcast at moody's.com. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.